Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm honored to have on as our guest, Dr. Bob Resnick. Bob is a first-generation gestalt therapist and trainer. He's been trained, examined, and certified by Fritz Perls, MD, developer of gestalt therapy. Bob was chosen by Dr. Perls in 1969 to introduce gestalt therapy to Europe, where he has been teaching 16 to 18 weeks annually since then. He has produced a free theory synopsis film in eight unedited individual contemporary gestalt therapy films and three couples therapy films. In 2019, he was awarded the APA Division 29 Distinguished Award for the International Advancement of Psychotherapy. His chapter for the new APA Handbook of Psychotherapy, Contemporary Gestalt Therapy, is in press. Today, we talk more about gestalt therapy in individuals and couples' work. Welcome, Dr. Resnick. Thanks for being here, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad you're on because you are a specialist in gestalt therapy, and I am so curious to hear from you kind of what that is and what the process is with patients using this specific modality of treatment. Sure. The word gestalt is a German word, and it doesn't have any exact translation. What it means is form or organization or relationship. It's the relationships between and among people and things that we're interested in. And it's the relationship that creates meaning. So, for example, I could sing Happy Birthday in the key of C. And I could then sing it in a different key where every note is changed. But the relationships between the notes are the same. And it would be immediately identifiable as Happy Birthday because the relationships are what organize the meaning, not the individual elements. So it means whole or configuration or or relationship. And fundamentally, we start with a growth or a health model, not a pathology model. Freud was a 19th century trained physician, psychiatrist, and he and his mentors were limited by what was known at that time. And at the time, he was brilliant, and he was a wonderful writer. His his prose is just beautiful. So, and there's a lot of gems within Freud. But he was stuck in a a 19th century mode, because that was the limit of what he could be exposed to at that time. And he took from medicine the idea of pathology. Pathology has to do with structure. And if a cell, if a pathologist looks under a microscope, they're looking to see if the walls of the cell, et cetera, fit within the range of normal, or if it's pathological, meaning structure is outside of normal. We don't start from that at all. We start from a developmental growth model that says all living things, including human beings, are born self-regulating. And how they are self-regulating is an interaction with their world, with their environment. And every kid that is born makes the very best organization he or she can. 
in the service of survival. Survival is the first biological imperative. Without that, everything else is a footnote. So the kid does what he or she needs to do with very little resources. They can't speak, they can't walk. Cognitively, they're very limited. They have no cell phone. I mean, they just can't do stuff. And yet, most kids are able to survive by dealing with the world that they don't choose. All kids are Lilliputians in a world of giants. So if a kid is born to a crazy family or into an alcoholic family, or like right now in Afghanistan, a war-torn family, that kid has to survive in that situation or they don't survive at all. So whatever the child does in the service of regulating themselves with their environment that they are in, not some optimal environment, but the actual one, that's healthy. We define healthy as it fits the situation. It's congruent with the situation. It's unhealthy if it doesn't fit the situation, if it's from another situation. For example, you run around the block, taking a deep breath is healthy. But if you run around the block and then you're in the water, underwater, taking a deep breath is silly. It'll kill you. There's nothing wrong with a deep breath. What's wrong is it's out of phase with the situation, with the context. So what happens is that kids are born with being self-regulating in their environment. That's good. If you're born into one of those families I mentioned before, crazy family, whatever, then keeping your mouth shut and staying back and quiet is very healthy. Because in that environment, you never know whether you're going to get a pat on the head or smack across the head. So you learn, keep your mouth shut, stay back, and scan to see if it's safe. That's healthy. It fits the situation. However, when that style of perceiving and, and reacting to the world becomes habitual, becomes rigidified, goes below awareness, that's the birth of character. Character is the freeze framing of what's healthy in one situation and continuing it a contextually regardless of the situation. I said to somebody recently that was having trouble getting that, and I said, if your nose itches and you scratch, that's healthy. But if from then on, no matter where you itch, you scratch your nose, that's not healthy. The definition of health is this adaptability to your environment. Yes, but not adaptability in the sense of going along with. Sometimes, yes, it's going along with, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's leaving your environment. Sometimes it's fighting your environment. Sometimes it's struggling with your environment, but it is in the service of self-regulation. Now, self-regulation doesn't mean you don't consider the other, especially in relationships with family and primary partners and, and good friends and kids and things like that. But self-regulation is dealing with the situation you're in rather than with a habit, characterological stance which is habitual. And character has two parts. We all think of character as, as pretty much the second one of how we habitually respond. But just as important and maybe even more important 
is character is also fixed ways of perceiving. So that if somebody has a loud voice and I get scared because my father had a loud voice and he was a drunk or he was crazy and violence would come soon after his loud voice. So it was very healthy back then for me to keep a low profile. Now I'm 35 years old. Somebody has a loud voice and I'm shrinking in the corner. Even if I don't show it on the outside, I'm shrinking and being careful. That's character. It's a out of place, out of context. Sometimes shrinking and being in the corner is very healthy. Like taking a breath is healthy in one situation, not healthy in taking a breath underwater. So I guess that also brings me to this question. So people come into your office realizing that their character is not really matching the setting that they're in. Or I guess the question is, where is the work? Where do you start the work? How do people even identify needing to do this work with you? Yeah, great question. From your mouth to God's ears that uh, they would walk in knowing that. Most people don't. They come in because they're upset. They come in because they have a problem. They come in because they're depressed. They come in because they're anxious. They come in for all kinds of reasons that are about their life. And as a therapist and as a human being, you need to meet them there because that's where they're in. That's their agenda. But if you only stay with their agenda, you'll just keep going around in the same circles they're going around. You won't get anything different because you're just reflecting exactly what they're doing. So the difficult and the creative part of doing therapy to me is how to switch when you've addressed the content of the issue, how to switch to the process. The process will start to uncover the characterological ways of making meaning and perceiving, which has now been borrowed and given a new name in the last couple of decades, they're calling it schema theory, but it is fixed ways of perceiving and processing and and making meaning and fixed ways of responding. So the core of the work is in the relationship. And most people who follow the literature know that In all the meta-studies, roughly 30% of the variance has to do with the relationship between the therapist and the client. But I think we go further than that, in that the relationship, the dialogue between the client and the therapist with clinical judgment is the heart of the work. Almost every therapy I know about, I'm being modest, I don't know of any therapy that doesn't ascribe to the idea that the past is somehow influencing and creating the present. Whether it's CBT and talking about reinforcement schedules, or it's psychoanalysis and talking about for Freud psychosexual development, or for somebody else, Adler Power or transformational Jung, or whatever, but they agree that it's The past influences the present. The classical analysts looked at the past in an attempt to understand the present. We do something different. We look in the present to see what's interrupting self-regulation 
in the present. Hmm. That's the relevant past. The relevant past is that which either enriches and supports self-regulation in the present or detracts from, deflects from self-regulation in the present. Then you don't have to interpret and you don't have to theorize and you don't have to speculate. It's palpable. It's right there. It's happening in the room. It's happening because that person, just as the therapist, each brings their characterological way of being in the world to the encounter. So it's a horizontal, dialogic in the Martin Buber sense, which means the therapist shows up as he or she is. That's what attracted me in, in the beginning, that I didn't have to play doctor. The presence of the therapist the inclusion of the experience of the client and taking their experience seriously, and then the commitment to dialogue, which is not trying to control the in-between, but letting what happens happen. And the interruptions will happen, characterological interruptions will happen in that place. So there's more self-disclosure on the therapist's part then? Yes, with clinical judgment. Clinical judgment being how much support, a judgment, how much support does this client have to hear this? Mm-hmm. And how much connection do we have? The bridge between us, how sturdy is it? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if somebody came into my office the first time and they stank, I probably wouldn't say anything. But once I built a relationship with them and I thought there was enough that they realized I was coming with goodwill, I could share my tentativeness with them. I could share my concern that they might get insulted or blah, blah, blah. But when there's enough support, then with that clinical judgment, I can share it. Now, because it's a judgment, it means sometimes I'm going to be wrong. My judgment is off. It's not a fact. At that point, what's really important is to own my part. My part in that, what the literature or some therapies talk about, a breach of attunement, where somebody is hurt or somebody is saddened or scared or angry at something I said or did. Then to own my part and not just make it all about them because relationships are co-created unless you're sitting with a clipboard like an expert. And I am an expert on some things, but I'm not an expert on your experience. Mm -hmm. You're the only expert, which brings us to another huge shift from psychoanalysis in the 30s, because Fritz Perls and Laura Perls, the developers, were both psychoanalysts. But what they switched from was an interpretive stance to a phenomenological stance. In simple English, what that means is getting the meaning of something from the client rather than colonizing the client with my meaning based on who I am, based on what theories I embraced, because I'm going to have a different interpretation if I'm a Freudian or a Jungian or an intersubjective analyst or more contemporary or or Viktor Frankl. I'm going to have a different one depending on how I put it together and taking my ground, my context, and putting it on what you said or did and making meaning rather than 
inquiring as to for you about what's important about that for you. What does that mean to you? What happens in your body when you say that or think of that? What happens in your mind? I mean, et cetera. Any feelings that come up when you say that. But to get the meaning from the client's phenomenology, all phenomenology means is how you make meaning. That's really all it means. And getting that from the client rather than imposing it on the client. And if they don't agree, then labeling them as resisting, you know? So a question for the listener, maybe they're thinking about how do I figure out the type of therapy that I should pursue? Or from my perspective, thinking about as a psychiatrist, people come to me and often ask, well, what type of therapy should I think about? What would be, what do you think would be most appropriate What are kind of some typical scenarios that I might hear as a psychiatrist or the listener might think about in terms of what they're looking for in therapy that might lead them to gestalt therapy as kind of a good option? What, I know that's a hard question, but what, what should I be listening for to think, okay, gestalt therapy really is the way to go for you? Well, I think it's not so hard question. I think it's a good question. There are lots of ways. Again, the relationship seems more important than the modality of psychotherapy, according to the research. And that's just not a study or two. That's the meta-analysis of of almost all of them. So who you're with is probably as important, if not more important, because that will determine what kind of a relationship you have with that person. There are some specifics. For example, if somebody comes to me, and this has happened, with a phobia, okay? They come with, I can't get on elevators. I go berserk with elevators. Can you help me? And it depends what you want. Some people, and I would tell them what I have to offer, but some people, no, 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 no. I I just want to be able to get on an elevator. Then sending them to a good behaviorist for an extinction in vivo with elevators and exposure therapy would be very quick, very efficient, if that's all they want. If the rest of your life is okay, and you know we all have struggles and, and disappointments, but if you're reasonably okay, then let me give you a referral to somebody like that. Or somebody who says they're really interested, because some people will come in with an interest, like in, in archetypes and dreams. I know some very good Jungian therapists, and I would refer to them for that. I might ask first, explore, I'm interested in the context of where that interest comes from. What's important about archetypes to you or what's meaningful to you about transcendence to just unpack with them what the ground is for that result of being interested in in that. So I would refer to that. I certainly would refer for something that might have an organic base. You know, if there was uh, the aroma or the actuality in front of me of bipolar, if somebody was bipolar or if they were psychotic or some of the more recent treatment of OCD with medication, I would send them to somebody for that, either for just a consult or for treatment. I mean, when somebody comes into me and occasionally you get people You get people on both sides, people who think medicine can do everything and people who think medicine can do nothing. But if I get somebody who says, I've had a few people like this, I've got these headaches all the time and I know it must be my anger. 
you know, how the hell do they know it must be their anger? That's the theory based on something they heard or read somewhere. I won't see them unless they have a consult with a neurologist. And one time, of course, it turned out to be a brain tumor, which they caught early and it was fine. They could take care of it, get, uh, get rid of it. So it's not a question of this is the only way. Of course not. But it is a good way if you're interested in a relationship with parity, where each person has their expertise and where they express who they are in the dialogue, that's the point of difference. Difference has a terrible reputation in our culture. Difference is something to be avoided, especially with couples. Difference is scary. Difference is critical. Difference is betrayal. Difference is I'm going to lose my autonomy or the other way around. Difference is I'm going to lose my connection. But difference has a terrible bad rep. For us, difference is the connective tissue. You can't connect with another human being without difference. Not conflict, difference. If it's the same, you have fusion or confluence where there's no boundary between you and the other, which is beautiful for a while. It's beautiful to visit there. But we have a model of marriage of two become one, as we usually say, and then there are none. Because either they get lost in fusion and there's no more me, there's only us, and they surrender to that, or there's a rupture and an explosion instead of an implosion, and there's a divorce. Either a divorce literally, which is only 55% of first marriages in Western countries, but the worst of the story is the other 45%. How many of them are what we call the secretly miserably married? The ones who stay married, not because it's mutually nourishing, imperfect as it always will be, but because they're terrified to be alone, or because of money, or because of religion, or because of kids, or because of social stigma, they're counted as successes, which is craziness. They're success at staying together, but they're not a success at being together for what they got together for which was some kind of mutual nourishment. So difference is where you learn. Awareness cannot happen without difference. And difference is how you learn something to be able to consider it and discriminate. Any living organism that cannot discriminate will die. Discriminate between toxic and nourishing, supportive and debilitating. An amoeba has to be able to do that. So this idea of helping someone develop this understanding of healthy differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Most people confuse difference with conflict. And the irony of it is there are three basic ways people deal with difference frequently, couples, for example, but other people as well. And they're terrible. One is they defer and go along. Yes, dear. Problem with that is I've lost me, and you've lost me. I'm not there. I'm just going along. It's hush money. The other way is I withdraw. But then I lose you. So that doesn't work very well. So most couples don't like that, so they go to the third one. 
and they try to get rid of the difference by making the other like them, convincing them, begging them, bribing them, intimidating them, bullying them, any way to make the other like them. The other typically resists. Now you have the perfect alchemy of difference changes to conflict. When you try to get rid of the difference by making the other like you, they push back, it escalates to an explosion, a pop, and a withdrawal. So what is the healthy way to go about this then? Well, the difficulty is most people assume that there's only one reality. And when you come from that assumption, which is kind of embedded in us, then if it doesn't go my way, it's going to go your way. I am going to be defined by your view of reality, which is why couples are frequently embarrassed about having fights over the cup. Didn't I tell you the blue cup? No, you said the white cup. They will go to the mat about that. And then the next week come in my office and say, we had a fight last week, but I don't remember what it was. I remember what it was. It's about the color of the cup. But that's not what the fight was about. That's the content. At the process level, it's who's going to define reality here. At the fundamental level, it's an existential question about whether I'm going to define reality or are you going to define reality for both of us. So what's very difficult is to let the difference stand. Not try and change the difference, but instead to engage the difference. By that, what I mean is, let me tell you about why it's important for me to go to such and such a place for our holiday. Let me tell you the meaning for me, why I like that, what my experience is with that. And I'm interested, genuinely interested, not asking you so I can argue with you and try and use it against you, but I'm really interested in what's the meaning for you of wanting to go to the seashore when I want to go to the mountains? What's important to you about that? When people are safe, they can engage the difference. If they're not safe, they don't dare engage the difference. They have to either avoid it or try to change it, which, which goes to conflict. Sounds like you do a lot of couples work in addition to just individuals. Absolutely. Half my practice and half of the training my wife and I do is in couples therapy that we've been developing this model for over 50 years. Her only 35 because she's much younger. <laughs> she's a little bit younger. But um, she's in bed right now with a broken ankle <laughs> that I told you about earlier. But the, the uh, reality is almost all therapy if you think about it, it's about relationships. I mean, just think, what would people talk about in therapy if it wasn't a relationship with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a boss, a kid, a friend? It's about relationships. It's about boundaries. It's about how you meet otherness and in relationships that are important to you, how do you extend concern to the other as well as to yourself? So you don't roll over somebody you care about and you don't bend down to somebody you care about. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. I noticed a smile came to your face a few minutes ago. No, I just, I completely agree with you. Yeah. I, I mean, it's very simple, but it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That model, when you said couples therapy, what we go from, because Gestalt therapy has many, many inputs. One of them is called field theory, which has to do with everything in the world is connected. And culture is the history of those connections. So, for example, at the sociological or anthropological level, we have a model of marriage, which is fusion, to become one. And it doesn't start with Genesis, but it's quoted in Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. You shall leave your mother and father and cleave to one another and become one flesh. That was old stuff already. The Judeo-Christian tradition just took it from the culture. They didn't make it up. But it's a fusion model. And like character for an individual, it was good. 30,000 years ago, it helped people survive. You couldn't survive on your own. You needed to be fused, confluent one. It's a character structure in the society. They don't use that language. They call them institutions. So marriage is an institution of to become one. And people follow it, and there's no room for difference, if you notice, in a fusion model. So what we propose, because it's easy to be against something, but can you come up with a better alternative? And what we came up with decades and decades ago is a connection model. Mm -hmm. And for a connection, it's obvious you have to have at least two. You can't connect if there's one. There's nothing to connect to. So in a connection model, difference is the connective tissue. Hmm. And the difference, sometimes you don't like it. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's wonderful. But difference is the connective tissue. It allows you to be in touch with self and other. Otherwise, you're only in touch with some kind of a fused blob that doesn't wear very well. And when this model, the two become one fusion model, I mean, marriages didn't last very long. People didn't live very long. As recently as 1898, which is just about 120 years ago, in this country, people are shocked when I tell them the average marriage with almost no divorce in a patriarchal society where women didn't inherit land or money or have an education or couldn't learn a craft. They could be maids. That's about it. So there was virtually no divorce. The average marriage was seven years because women died in childbirth. That was before the widespread use of antibiotics, which wasn't until around 1907. So women died and men had several wives and several, and so they'd have two kids and then the third one, systemic infection, and they're gone. Seven years, you can do that on one foot. But marriages now, relationships now, 10, 20, 30, 40. My wife and I have been together 50 years. It's a long time. Yeah. And unless you show up, as you're going along, of course, people change. What's core to you in your 20s is not that important in your 60s. Other things become more important. But if you don't stay engaged with your partner, you just drift apart. Yeah. You did an outstanding job 
explaining a very complex theories and modalities and help you move along in, in this type of therapy. And I, I, I appreciate you shedding some light on it for me. And I hope the listener understands a little bit more about your process and how you work with, with clients and how to think about gestalt therapy as an option. I really appreciate it. And we do, we still have small private practices, but we've always had a large part of our time doing training in Europe, a little bit in South America, Australia, but Europe a lot with their 16, 18 weeks a year. We have training here in LA and we have training in uh, Seattle as well. For mental health practitioners or yes. for yeah. Yeah. licensed or licensed eligible if they are matriculated graduate students. Right. What we'll do is I'll make sure that I have the link to the work you do on the episode description. So if people want to learn a little bit more about your work, they can. In addition to, like you said, you do trainings for mental health professionals, but also provide therapy for individuals and couples. Do you ever do workshops for groups of couples or? Um, We have in the past, we haven't done that in many years. We do workshops for training couples therapists Mm. and we bring in live couples and we have films that are available and the introduction to that is free on Vimeo. Same thing with the individual. There are individual films on Vimeo that are for sale, but the the theory film is free. And when we do couples training workshops, we bring in live couples. And the people who are not familiar with our model, they work with role play. The people who are familiar with, with our model, they work with the same live couples that we work with half of the time. And they do half with us doing live supervision. I see. Okay. Well, it sounds like you do a lot. Yes, we do. And you're very passionate about your work. Yes. When people ask me, when am I going to retire? I said, for what? I mean, retirement to me is the best is if you can do what you want to do. And that's what I'm doing. So I don't want to chase a golf ball (laughs) around the golf course. Although my younger son is crazy about golf. So that would be fun to play with him and his nine-year-old. But I don't want to retire. I want to write and... I want to teach and I want to keep a small private practice. Well, it's always great to love what you do to a life of, of real meaning. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and understanding with us today. And thank you for uh, inviting me. It's nice to begin to get to know you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.